It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes a fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Zinn is being mobbed as are Rue Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. This is Cleveland's team a baseball history podcast. A regular look back at professional baseball in Cleveland from 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Guardians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cleveland's Team, a baseball history podcast. And on this episode, we are going to talk about the one, the only, Satchel Page. A few months ago, I was lucky enough to have some time to chat with Larry Ty, the New York Times bestselling author of Satchel, The Life and Times of an American Legend. His book came out in 2010, and after I had a chance to read it, it just blew me away, the meticulous detail and just Satchel's life story. I mean, it's just incredible, uh, the life lived by Satchel Page and the amount of baseball he played. And this podcast is really going to be a cliff note version, if if even, of Satchel's career. If you have a chance to pick up the book, you'll realize just how detailed and, and how uh, you probably need a mini-series or a few episodes to do justice to the life and times of Satchel Page. So there's going to be some Q&A I had with Mr. Ty about his book and uh, a few stories here and there, but overall uh yeah Satch's career is just it's incredible and um so don't go into this i suppose expecting a a blow-by-blow account of satchel's baseball career because it's just very difficult to capture that and you know something under eight hours i'd imagine so i'm going to keep this very cleveland centric too just because again this is a cleveland baseball history podcast if you want the details behind Satch's early life and um, you know more of that, again, Larry Ty's book is a fantastic starting point. But uh, to to connect it to Cleveland, um, you know, you first really start to see Satchel's name appear in the Plain Dealer in the early '30s when he's barnstorming with some of these Negro League teams and uh, the July 23rd. 1933 Plain Dealer notes that um, the Chicago Giants and the Pittsburgh Crawfords were going to be playing at a, in a doubleheader at League Park. So again, the history of League Park, not only just of 
you know, those early Cleveland Naps and Indians teams, but also the Negro League teams that came through. And it was noted that Satchel was going to be pitching, and he is the star speedball threat. And that next year, in 1934, there's a, a clipping in the Plain Dealer. It says, For this coming game, the Black Mathewson is soaking up some special speed. He is working out in a shooting gallery. His manager says that Satch's Sunday speed will be too swift for ordinary horsehide baseballs, so he is having some made up out of racehorse hides, racehorses that have defunct. Um, so, again, these you start picking up the stories of Satchel pretty quick, almost the larger-than-life tales of this pitcher. And that really led me to some of my first questions with Larry Ty of what makes someone want to tackle a book on Satchel Page. I mean, it seems just very daunting and um, someone that's that's so so much larger than life. It's, it's harder to find another one in baseball history. And uh, that was really, again, the first question I posed. So two things drew me to the Satchel Page story. One is anytime you're writing a book about anybody or any single person or single event, you're interested in their life as a lens into bigger issues. And the idea that Satchel was born the day that Jim Crow laws passed in his native Alabama, and that he took us right up to the era of integration and Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, his life seemed the perfect lens to look at the bigger story of Jim Crow. And when I wrote my book proposal, The only line I remember of that is the first line, which said, this is a biography of two American icons, Satchel Paige and Jim Crow. And what I really wanted to do was tell to a younger generation the story of Jim Crow. And Jim Crow is a shorthand for the amalgam of all the segregation laws that existed in an era when America was divided into black and white. And the idea of getting kids of my kids' age to sit down and read a story about Jim Crow was something that was an impossibility. But if you disguise that story as the story of the most entertaining and arguably the most skilled baseball player ever to pick up and throw a baseball, that seemed like a way to do it. So it was partly because I was intrigued by him, but I was intrigued by the bigger story. Um, The other question that you seem to be asking, and you're too polite to put it this way, is why did the world need the 101st biography of Satchel Paige? And the answer is it probably didn't, but I wanted to write it. My publisher, which was the biggest publisher in America, Penguin Random House, um, seemed eager to publish it. And I thought that there was um, enough new material out there and enough sense that Satchel's story was no longer a story of yesteryear, but a story of race in America today, that they were game to do it. Um, I tried to convince them in the the proposal, and more importantly, in the book itself, that there really was a new way of seeing Satchel. And for better or worse, it made bestseller lists, and it seemed to catch on. And uh, and even people who knew a whole lot more about Negro League's era and about Satchel himself seemed to think that um, we had new things to say. So, And in those 1930s barnstorming years, uh, Satch teamed up with uh, Dizzy and Daffy Dean 
to do barnstorming. And you, know, you, you get these stories, and Daffy was quoted in the Plain Dealer as saying, yeah, he's got a hell of a fastball. Yes, sir, he's got a fastball. And so it was widely known that Satchel was this uh, fantastic pitcher with un- unmatchable stuff. But, you know, again, as years go on and decades go go by, and even in that time, too, the the bigger stories about Satchel, um, you know, that, that create this sort of myth or this, uh, you know, what was true and what wasn't, it gets kind of hard to separate. And that's, again, one of the things I wanted to know is if you're writing a book about Satch, how do you, you know, go about that? How do you tackle that and, uh, you know, figure out what's what's real and what's not? If I knew how to give a short answer, I would say it's very difficult and I'd end it there. But I think that the the truth is that Satchel was an enigma. He was a riddle. He was a mystery. And trying to sift through fact and fiction is what you and I do every day as journalists, as historians, as whatever we want to call ourselves that day. And so it is hard. It is fun. And it is for baseball people and for saber type baseball people who are fascinated by all the metrics of baseball and all the numbers, Satchel Page's story is a riddle that seems worth solving. And it is especially worth solving today when Major League Baseball pledges to go a level deeper in trying to include in its record books the great Negro leaguers like Satchel. And my book argues that if they really want to go deep, they have to rewrite the entire record book for pitchers because so much of what he said, while he was not beyond embellishing and he did it brilliantly about things like his age which he didn't think mattered when he started talking about numbers in baseball just about every number that he talked about ended up as I started investigating and it did it with the help of all these Negro Leagues historians and all kinds of Sabre people, the numbers generally proved to be true. And if you want, we can walk through some of the numbers and I'd explain why I think these numbers that seem outrageous, in fact, can be factually borne out. And between uh, baseball references, new inclusion of the Negro League stats and going through Larry's book, you just get this sense of these remarkable career numbers of Satch's career and uh, just stuff that, you know, due to the inability to, to find box scores at times, um, you know, there's so much that's been lost that we don't know about Satchel's career. But, um, you know, again, Larry does a great job in his book putting that all together. Sure. So let's look at one number and one important number, um, which is how many games he pitched in. And the major league record is held by a guy named Jesse Orozco, and it's 1,252. And Satchel claimed to have pitched in more than twice that number of games in 2,500 games. But when you look at it and you start thinking just logically, before you start looking at every little newspaper in America that Um, recorded him coming through and playing a game in their town. You just think logically, Orozco's numbers were just for the big leagues where he pitched for 24 years from April to, if he was lucky, October. Satchel's numbers, when he claimed 2,500, were for semi-pro and professional in the Negro Leagues and barnstorming, 
They were overseas and in the minors and the majors. And he played not just in traditional baseball season from April to September. He played spring and summer, fall and winter. He pitched three innings for, for many games, but he did it just about every day or nearly every day for 41 years. So what I concluded is that 2,500 is just over 60 games a year and that it wasn't nearly high enough. And in case after case, I found that what we thought was his overstatement was his seat of the pants understatement. And it is basically because this guy, um, nobody wanted to watch a Negro Leagues baseball game when Satchel's team pitched, uh, I'm sorry, when Satchel's team played without watching Satchel pitch. So he would, even if it meant only pitching an inning or two, he would pitch just about every team, uh, every game when his team, whether it was the Kansas City Monarchs or whoever it was, when they played, he pitched and when he pitched, he entertained and drew fans, and that was good for him. It was good for Negro Leagues baseball, and it set the table for Jackie Robinson and the integration of baseball. But all of his numbers, I mean, he said that he pitched for 250 teams and pitched 250 shutout games. He said that he did, he struck out 22 batters in one game against not just a pickup team, but against major league barnstormers, which would have been an all-time record. He said he pitched 50 no-hitters and 21 straight wins and 153 pitching appearances in a single year. And this is, to me, in a way, the most extraordinary number that he claimed to have done. He said he pitched three winning games in a single day. And that seems outrageous, but when you look at the records and when you look at newspaper accounts, unless everybody was conspiring to create some big lie, it was true. And as Larry mentioned, fans came out to see Satchel Page pitch. Uh, the August 4th, 1941, Plain Dealer mentioned that there were 10,000 fans at League Park. And the paper said that the man who has been declared one of the greatest pitchers ever to throw a ball, bar none, is not yet thinking of retiring, he said in an interview. He does not like to be spoken of, though, as old, for he believes that word hurts him at the box office. So again, he could draw fans and, and make money. And uh, again, as one of the, the best pitchers in baseball, he was a, a sight to, to go check out. The June 11th, 1942 Plain Dealer has a, a little article when Satchel was coming to League Park again for another double header, and it mentioned that he was 34 years old at the time, and one of the marvels of the sports world. Old Satch says he's been pitching for 18 years, both in summer and winter leagues. The eccentric right-hander who loves flashy clothes and brightly painted automobiles has faced the greatest batters in the game with conspicuous success. Uh, Charlie Geringer of the Detroit Tigers wins his vote as top batter, although he admits that Joe DiMaggio and Hank Greenberg can hit like the blazes. Wanderlust is taking Satch to Honolulu, Venezuela, Mexico, Panama, Cuba, Haiti, and Puerto Rico. His income is said to be in the excess of 15000 annually. And again, if you go through Larry's book, he talks about Satchel's uh, stops at those various places and just how much he was pitching during that time. And as we see in 
these newspaper articles, you know, they give you a sense, bits and pieces of Satchel's story, but the guys that played with him or the people that played against him, there's, there's always more to the story that's never written down. And I wanted to know, um, you know, when talking to Larry, was there anyone you wanted to speak to, you didn't have a chance to, um, just because he was, you know, doing his research in the 2000s, uh, there were still quite a few Negro League players, as there's a few today, but the numbers been steadily declining just with age, like you see with World War II veterans. Yes. Yeah, so the answer is I came along at a time when, on the one hand, if I was a pessimist, I would say, geez, I wish I'd been there 10 years before and gotten more people who played with Satchel who are still alive. And on the other hand, I'm an optimist. And I would say I got to talk to people like Buck O'Neill, who died not that long after. And my book was the last chance to get any firsthand witnesses who had played with Satchel. And I'm just back now from Kansas City for a trip for my next book. I'm writing a biography of Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Louis Armstrong. And I was in Kansas City. Um, and I was really struck when I was there visiting friends at the Negro League Museum how that was a different experience without the great Buck O'Neill to tell his stories, most of which were actually true, and hear the firsthand testimony. And now it's people like me who are left to um, to tell these stories because we heard it from firsthand witnesses, but sadly, those people are gone. And the um, and it is the only consistency in the nine books that I am writing or have written um, is that I come along at a time when there are very few people left, but come along with a, at a time when I want to get on paper um, and on tape the people who are left to give us their real versions. Can I just say the, the person, if there were two people who I could, you, you asked the question, who would I like to go back and talk more to? There are two people who knew Satchel who I'd love to go back and talk more to. One was Buck O'Neill, um, and everybody knows that Buck O'Neill was, in addition to being a great Negro League player and manager himself, he was also the driving force behind Kansas City's Negro League Baseball Museum. But the other guy that I wish was still around to talk to was Bob Feller. And Bob Feller uh, was a very, as any Indians um, fan of old knows, Bob Feller was a stunningly brilliant pitcher and a stunningly difficult personality um, and a guy who it took me forever to convince to sit down and talk to me. I made more interview dates with him that he canceled than I care to recall. And yet when I finally went to talk to him, he was in a hotel room in New York there for some reason that I can't recall um, with one of his PR guys and the um, and I thought given the difficulty in getting Feller to sit down with me and given what a difficult person he could be that I would have to front load my questions in other words ask anything important up front because he could kick me out at any time and instead of kicking me out at the end of two hours I had run out of anything to ask him and he said no you've got more time and so I started making up questions that the uh, seat of the pants things that I didn't really need to know but it wasn't me I wish I could tell you that it was because I was so charming that he wanted to stick around for that extra time I think the reason he wanted to stick around was because he was partly celebrating the great Satchel Page by telling stories of what it was like to play with him 
on the Indians in that famous championship team in 1948, or to play against him barnstorming across America when there was an all-black Satchel Page all-star team against an all-white Bob Feller Major League Baseball team. But I also think that Feller was doing something else, that Feller had a reputation of maybe not having been the most racially sensitive guy in the world, including in his barnstorming days against Satchel. And I think he wanted to correct the record or maybe tweak the record and spin it a bit to make him seem like he was more racially open-minded than he might have been back in that era of segregated baseball. With Satchel, going back to the earlier point I made of separating the you know man myth, what you know he wanted you to see. Um, there's a story that uh, Buck O'Neill tells in Ken Burns' documentary and that Leary talks about in his book as well, where Satchel takes Buck O'Neill to a, uh, a, a spot where slaves used to be auctioned off and was was very um, you know, introspective about it, saying how I think he had felt like he had been there before in another life. And, uh, you know, just what that says about the person that Satch was, um, what he presented to, you know, fans on the field versus who he was off the field. Yes, so it is. And, and I'm glad you asked that question because um, Satchel's image to the world was as um, a great pitcher and a great jokester and, um, and the riddle and enigma that we talked about, but it was not as a racial pioneer. And I think that is a distorted image. And I think the same way I'm seeing now with these three guys, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and Louis Armstrong, um, they were not seen as racial pioneers. And in fact, Louis Armstrong, who may have been the most famous African-American um, of his era, was seen by many people as an Uncle Tom. And that's a total distortion. It's a misreading of history, I think. Um, the fact that all of these four guys that I've mentioned were out there promoting the thing they did best, whether they were playing trumpet or in Duke Ellington's and Count Basie's cases leading a band or in Satchel Page's case pitching a baseball, they were proving that they could be not just great a great black ball player, but a great ball player. And showing the artistry that he showed every time he took the mound, that is what made it possible for Jackie Robinson to come along and integrate baseball. The reason Branch Rickey noticed Jackie Robinson was because Jackie was the second string second baseman on Satchel Page's extraordinary Kansas City Monarchs team. And most old Negro leaguers that I talked to, and most who I didn't get to talk to, but who said something to other writers and journalists, the, said it should have been Satchel, or it should have been Josh Gibson, or it should have been one of the greats of the Negro Leagues who broke the color barrier, not this upstart Jackie Robinson, who often didn't give the credit to the people upon whose shoulders he stood, the greats like Satchel and Josh. And one old Negro leaguer said it much more eloquently than I could. He said that Jackie Robinson may have walked through the door to integr integrate baseball, but it was Satchel Page who turned the key. And what he was saying, again, is the same idea that Satchel Page, whether or not the world thought of him as a racial pioneer, was absolutely that in a way that was really profound. And if my book was trying to do any 
one thing. It was not correct the record on Satchel's wins and losses. It was to correct the record on Satchel's role in baseball history and American history. Another question I had was, could it have been Satch to be the one to break the color barrier? Um, you know, obviously by the point when Jackie and Larry both got in, Satchel was old, older. Um, you know, a lot of fans maybe thought he had seen his better days. So was there any possibility that, that it could have been Satch or were there too many strikes against him? Um, so I like the notion, uh, the metaphor of strikes against Satchel, but I think that the, um, I want to give you the answer that Branch Ricky would have given if he were sitting here in our Zoom today having this conversation and he would have said Satchel was the wrong guy, that Satchel was about Satchel and he didn't know how to keep his mouth shut and sort of quietly integrate a sport when doing that was so controversial uh, that Jackie was this college educated guy. He was um, he was somebody who would take the insults and internalize them, but not strike back in a way that Satchel would have done. And, and if he were being honest, Branch Rickey would have said Satchel wouldn't have taken orders from me, Branch Rickey, the guy who was trying to sign this first black ball player. Um, that's the answer he would have given. The right answer, I think, is that Satchel would have been brilliant, that it was Satchel who proved more than any other black ball player that he could attract not just black baseball fans, but white ones. The reason Branch Rickey and the other owners integrated baseball wasn't because they believed in integration. It was because they believed in making money and filling the baseball stands. And they knew there were great black ball players out there who could help them fill up their stadiums. And it was, there were two competing economic interests. One of the things that kept segregation in place is that when teams like the New York Yankees went on the road and, and Yankee Stadium was sitting empty, they would rent out the stadium to the Negro Leagues team called the Black Yankees, and that would fill the stadium on a night that it would have otherwise sat empty and bring revenue to them. So there was a financial interest in keeping segregation in place, and the competing financial interest was these great black ball players who could make baseball a more exciting sport. And Satchel showed he could do it. He showed that fans loved him. And whereas Jackie Robinson's ha hair turned prematurely white as a sign of how the ulcers that he was suffering that we couldn't see, we were seeing in the form of the white hair. Um, all of this was eating away at him, all the insults he had to bear. Satchel would have taken the insults and left and would have made racist uh, fellow players and fans, he turned them around. Over the years, he converted more racist into fans of his um, than any black did in just about any enterprise in America. And the same thing that Louis Armstrong did, a lot of racist whites in the 1930s and 40s and 50s who would never have invited a black man into their home wooed their girlfriends and their wannabe wives with the music of Louis Armstrong, black trumpeter. Likewise, Satchel Paige 
brought white fans to watch Negro League games or to watch barnstorming games between white and black teams in a way that made Branch Rickey realize what he could do by signing Jackie and that created this opening. Baseball was integrated, as we all know, years before our schools or most of our institutions in America were integrated. And the possibility of integration was proven by integrating Major League Baseball. And a lot of that is on Satchel Page. And we'll be right back after this quick break. And we're back. Another thing I was wondering, too, is was it a match, you know, you needed the Bill Vec to sign a guy like Satchel Page? And you see in the Plain Dealer after Cleveland signed Page, it said there was a, an article that said Vec is confident Page has enough left to supply pitching help that the Indians need. You can call Leroy Satchel Page one of the 10 greatest pitchers who ever lived and few competent authorities will challenge your estimate of the new Indians uh, rightful place in history. But you can say the same about Denton Tecumseh Cy Young, and yet no rush of big league scouts to sign the pride of Tuscarawas County has been reported. What I mean is, the question of the wisdom of Bill Vex hiring the fabulous satchel boils down to this. How much of it has he got left? 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, the signing of Page would have been joyous news for the followers of any major league ball club. It, uh, it had it been possible 10, 15 years ago to ignore the color line and employ a Negro in the white leagues. Today it serves only to raise a question. Did Vec do it as a publicity gag, or does he really think the guy can help the Indians? I believe I know the answer, which contains the answer to the question stated earlier in this essay. I believe Bill Vec thinks sincerely that Satchel Page can supply some of the pitching help the Indians need if they are to, to continue to be a factor in the pennant race. Yes. So the short answer again is yes. Um, Vec was the owner who could do it, who wanted to do it, and who did it. And had it not been for him, I don't know when Satchel would have been signed at some point, but most people would have looked and said, this guy is much too old, and why would we need or want somebody like that? Um, so I want to take you to a day in Cleveland baseball history, and that day is July 6, 1948. And Bill Vec told Lou Boudreau, um, his player manager to come watch a, a player that he thought could maybe help the team on its drive to win a, a pennant and um, that year. And Vec thought he was coming to see a young pick, pitcher. He shows up that day at the ballpark and he says to his owner um, and boss Vec, where's the kid? And we got to remember that Boudreaux at this point is not only a player manager, but he was always battling with Ted Williams for the batting championship. And so he stood in against not a young kid, but against Satchel Page. He thought it was some kind of a joke. And he fouled balls off. He hit weak grounders. He hit infield pop-ups. There were, at that time, day in the stadium, there were 78,000 empty seats, and Vec was hobbling around. We all know that Vec had an artificial leg, um, and he was hobbling around on his wooden leg, shagging balls. And of the 20 pitches that Satchel threw to Boudreaux, 19 were strikes, and nothing looked like a base hit. And Boudreaux's words, as he was leaving, he said, don't let him get away 
will meaning Bill Vec, we can use him. And the contract for Satchel was signed the next day, July 7th, 1948, which was Satchel's 42nd birthday. And Vec had the creativity and the foresight to realize that a 42-year-old baseball player who um, the, had been passed over by the Brooklyn Dodgers and by um, was somebody who could help the Cleveland team. And it wasn't a dream or a fantasy. It was a reality. He came in and he helped the team. He, he pitched that year um, to the point to, to such an extraordinary um, level of dominance that at age 42, lots of baseball writers joked that he ought to get votes. He actually got 12 AP votes for Rookie of the Year. Um, he had an ERA of 247, which was second best in the American League. And his record for the season, having come in in the middle of the summer, was 6-1. and one. And he joked when people said, you know, what do you think about getting these votes for Rookie of the Year? He said, I'm honored, but I'm not sure what year they're talking about. He had been pitching for 20 years, and he finally was given a shot at age 42, and he took that shot, and he helped carry the Indians to a world championship, and the rest is baseball history. I also wondered about the relationship between Satchel Page and Larry Doby. You have two players from two different eras with, you know, two different life experiences and, and how they kind of work together or, or how they maybe butted heads. So they were contrasting personalities and they didn't especially get along. They were roommates and Satchel had been traveling on the road so long and he would bring with him his little hot plate and would cook the meals in the room. And this was something that to a younger player like Dobie, Satchel was old school and old hat. And he just, um, it was something that Dobie couldn't relate to. And what Satchel said to Dobie was the same thing he had said to Jackie Robinson, which is just sort of calm down. I've been around. I can help you. I can show you not just how to deal with this new situation of integrating baseball, but I can show you how to have fun. And that was the thing that Satchel did that I could relate to maybe more than anything. That what's the point of giving up, you know, so much of your young life uh, to anything that you have to work as hard as you did to be a professional baseball player if you couldn't have fun at the same time. And Satchel made it all a blast. And he could make his opposing players and his teammates laugh. He could make, you know, 78,000 fans in Cleveland laugh. He just, he filled stadiums and he made the game what it ought to be, which is entertaining as well as artistry. When you read about Satchel's career or hear stories about when he played in the Negro Leagues and, you know, you realize what a, a, I don't know, character is really the right word, but personality that he was. And going to the major leagues, it, w it was different. And I often, again, asked Larry if the major leagues really kind of 
didn't allow Satchel to be who he was. And you, know, you see that when he was put on waivers after the 1949 season, um, the plane dealer mentioned that Satchel was a solitary operator and his own boss. Though much of his incredibly long career, Satchel never adjusted himself to the rules and regulations of organized baseball. Boudreaux was lenient, but found it increasingly embarrassing to permit Page to disregard such things as railroad timetables and midnight curfew while holding other players to strict observance of all rules. But his severest critic in the Indians org does not deny the value of such contributions to the team when they were needed most desperately. He won six games and lost only one in the second half of the red-hot 1948 race. Without those victories, Cleveland could not have won the pennant and world championship. So again, you see, um, you know, you hear that in the book as well, is that uh, Satchel, while playing in the, you know, with Cleveland, wanted to be himself and it it just, it rubbed guys the wrong way. And uh, ultimately, you know, he was, he he left the organ, or he was put on waivers and uh, left Cleveland after the 49 season. So he could never be the personality he was in the Negro Leagues. In the Negro Leagues, he would show up before a game um, and have one of his teammates have a lit cigarette in their mouth. And as part of the entertainment for fans who showed up early, and it was just about everybody who showed up early because they knew there was going to be this entertainment, he would knock the cigarette, the lit cigarette, out of the mouth, throwing a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. Um, And the only player on the face of the earth who a teammate would put themselves through that, have a fastball thrown near their head like that, was Satchel because they knew he was going to hit the cigarette and not them. He would call in um, his infielders and even his outfielders, um, call them in or tell them to just sit down when he was pitching because he was so so sure that he was going to strike out a batter that he didn't need fielders there. He would stick four nails in a one foot by two foot um, board behind home plate, fire 10 balls and drive all the nails into the board, which both showed his precision that he could hit on the head, the nail, and the horsepower to actually knock it deep into the board. He would do things like that, and nobody ever did that in a major league game. That would be considered unseemly, but it would also be considered fun. And I guess, I think that that 78,000 fans would have turned up early if they knew that Satchel was going to do his performances. So, yes, some of the true artistry and some of the fun of Satchel was lost when he got to the major leagues. But there was also so much that people saw when they saw this guy. I know when I was a kid and I would go to Boston Red Sox games and I would watch a great pitcher, Bill Mambouquet or Earl Wilson, throw a stunning game. And my father would always say to me, uh, they're really great, but you ought to have seen Satchel Page. And I don't even know if my father saw Satchel Page pitch, but he was the legendary character that that was what for decades fathers would tell sons and grandfathers would tell grandsons or granddaughters, you ought to have seen Satchel Page. And they were right. And whether they ever did, the truth is that more baseball fans saw Satchel Page pitch a baseball than any pitcher in the history of the planet. And 
to an extent, Satchel was still going pretty strong into even 1965. Uh, earlier that year, actually, he was inducted into the Cleveland Indians Hall of Fame at the time. And uh, you know, during, it was in between doubleheader, he uh, went to the bullpen and sat with Gary Bell and, and spoke a little bit to him. And he had this wonderful quote about uh, pitching. He said, there's nothing to this pitching business. Just take the ball and throw it where you want to throw it. Throw strikes. Home plate don't move. Um, then a couple months later, he got one last shot on uh, an American League mound. Uh, so, yes, that is true. And that is, again, there's one date that we can point to that makes that case most compellingly. And that is September 25, 1965. And there's an owner of the Kansas City A's who is almost as much of a character, maybe even more of a character than Bill Veck was for the Indians. And that was a guy named Charlie Finley. And Charlie Finley had trouble during that season filling his stadium. So he decided late in the season on September 25th that he was going to bring Satchel Page out of retirement to come and pitch part of that ball game. He set him up in the bullpen. There was a nurse in a white uniform who was rubbing liniment on his right arm. He had a personal water boy standing by. There were six kids in the stands, uh, six of his kids in the stand with his wife, uh, who was ready to deliver the seventh baby. So he pitches those three innings and Bill uh, and Charlie Finley doesn't care what he does. Honestly, he just cared about filling up the stadium. And the fact is, Satchel never let anybody have the last word. So it wasn't Finley filling up the stadium that people remembered afterwards. It was Satchel needing just 28 pitches to get nine outs. The only hit was a double by a guy um, who was an icon when I was growing up as a Red Sox fan, a guy named Carl Yastrzemski, whose dad had a hit against Satchel a full generation earlier in semi-pro ball on Long Island. And after the game, Yaz came up and hugged Satchel. Now, Yastrzemski was not a very um, emotional guy, but he hugged him because he understood that Satchel was a guy who actually had pitched against his own father and understood just what it meant in terms of what, what they were watching that day. Satchel left the ballpark to a standing ovation and then was called back and they darkened the field and fans flicked matches and cigarette lighters. And in his honor, they sang the song Old Gray Mare. What Satchel did that night was he set a record, and we can't say what I'm about to say about many major league records. That was a record that will never ever be broken and it was a record for longevity we think that tom brady in his early 40s is a medical miracle well satchel page that night against the boston red sox was 59 years two months and eight days old which was 33 years older than his catcher the idea that anybody can do anything on a an athletic field at age 59 is pretty extraordinary. And the idea that Satchel Page shut out the Boston Red Sox was a miracle. And we'll be back after a quick break. And we're back. Now, again, if you know anything, just 
the cliff notes of Satchel Paige, you'll know that his age was always one of those things that was in question. Even in the newspapers of that era, it was just always, well, he says this, but you know, this says this. And it was really hard to pin down, but it was such a part of who Satchel was. So I was curious about how Larry went about researching that and, and using that. So my favorite was trying to unravel his age. And every record that I would turn up had a different listing of when he was born and how and what year. Um, his draft record said that he was born on September 26, 1908, um, which I think maybe was fudge so he couldn't list and defend the country. His social security card said August 15, 1908. His passport file said it was February 5th. All of those dates shared one thing, which is that they were supplied by Satchel. The truth, in fact, was clear, and it was sitting there in the Mobile, Mobile County Health Department where Satchel had been born, and the registry said that a baby was born, his race was colored, and his date of birth was July 7, 1906. And unraveling that was my favorite piece of examining satchel lore um, for a reason and it was the question of why why would he bother to fudge his age he was already older than methuselah in terms of a lot of the pitching that he was doing when the world was paying attention and i think what he was doing was telling us a little inside joke it was that he grew up in a Jim Crow segregated world in Mobile, Alabama, in an era when he was told you can drink water from this water fountain, but not from the one next to it. You can go to this second rate school or use this dirty restroom, but you can't use the one that is whites only. He was told everything he could and couldn't do. And I think in later years, he was having fun with journalists by saying, I'm going to invent my own rules about something that only matters to me, which is when I was born, but I'm going to play around with you. And if it will put me on page one by giving you a fresh new date, I'm going to do that. And if you're gullible enough or playing along with me enough to print that and make a big deal out of it, Let's have fun with it. But I think he was basically saying, I'm going to write my own rules. When it's something important about how many shutouts or no hitters I pitched, I'm going to tell the truth. But when, when it is something that matters only to me, like my date of birth, I'm going to do what I think is going to be fun in doing that. And that's why he lied about that. Though I've never written a biography, I, I've done enough research on individuals where you feel like you get to know them. And I imagine writing a biography to the extent of Satchel Page, you, you sort of get to know him, but there's always those questions you wish you could ask a historical figure. So I was curious if there was a question that uh, Larry would, would have liked to have asked Satchel. So my one question would be, how did you manage the world tried to beat you down in so many different ways? What is it at a moment where America is trying to come up with a racial reconciliation for the country, and when we're more divided seemingly than ever, what is your message of hope? How did you manage, given the way we beat you down, to have so much fun with your career and with your life? And what is the message you would give us today that can help us work our way out of comparably divided racial 
horizons here. Again, I want to thank Larry Ty for joining me uh, on this podcast. It was fascinating to, to speak with him. His book, Satchel, The Life and Times of American Legend, is a, a great read, uh, really researched and, and detailed, and tells a story of such an interesting and fascinating uh baseball legend and a man a myth a legend he, he was he was all of those things um so feel free to check that out and uh again thank you for joining me on this episode of cleveland's team a baseball history podcast you've been listening to cleveland's team a baseball history podcast with guardians team historian jeremy fedor 